Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. I'm Marco Sassoli. I'm professor of international law at the University of Geneva in Switzerland and director of the Department of International Law and International Organization. And I would like to speak to you today about the relationship between two important branches of international law which protect individuals international humanitarian law and international human rights law. The most important thing to retain will be that it would be wrong to think that human rights law applies in peacetime and humanitarian law in wartime. Unfortunately, or for the persons concerned, perhaps fortunately, the relationship between the two branches is much more complicated because human rights law continues to apply during armed conflict. Now, the two branches, I will speak about their traditional differences, the convergence between the two branches, how to determine the applicable rule if rules of the two branches seem to contradict each other, but from the very beginning, we have to be conscious that both branches have fundamentally the same aim, to protect human beings against abuse and to allow them to live in dignity. And as humanitarian law applies only to armed conflicts, obviously we have to speak about the relationship between two, these two branches in armed conflicts and therefore by belligerence. And I think it's useful to start by explaining how states and armed groups avoid by legal arguments to the application of these two branches. Now for international humanitarian law it's easy. A state simply has to say there is no armed conflict because uh, international humanitarian law applies only to armed conflict and therefore, but that's the subject of another lecture, it's very important to know what does that exactly mean? What is an armed conflict? As far as international human rights law is concerned, uh, one argument to deny its applicability in armed conflict and we will deal with this in this lecture is to say that international humanitarian law is the lex specialis and therefore prevails in armed conflict. Prevails, according to some, always in armed conflict. We come back to that. In my opinion, this is clearly wrong. Second, uh, states argue that international human rights law does not apply extraterritorially. So, to avoid the application of human rights law to an armed conflict, a state involved in an armed conflict outside its own territory may simply argue human rights law doesn't apply, or at least I'm not bound by human rights law obligations, because human rights law obligations only concern my own territory. I will come back to that. This, in my view, is also wrong. Then, 
and this is correct, uh, human rights law may be subject to derogations in situations of emergency and armed conflicts may well be situations of emergency and then only the hard core of human rights remains protected against such derogations. We will also come back to that. Finally, and this is in my view correct, uh, the applicability of human rights law may be denied by armed groups saying that human rights law is only addressed to states and not to armed groups. And finally, both branches, international humanitarian law and international human rights law, uh, have the problem that uh, formally international organizations are not bound by the treaties of the two branches. I mean an international organization, be this the UN or a regional organization, cannot become a party to the Geneva Conventions, the additional protocols, or to the covenants on civil and political or on economic, social and cultural rights. And this is a problem in armed conflict because uh, international organizations are often involved in armed conflict and the UN, for instance, even insists that as far as UN peace operations are concerned, it has command and control and therefore um, it would not be, those operations would not be attributable to the contributing state but to the UN and the UN is not a party to these uh, treaties. Finally, um, there is the argument of the famous Article 103 of the UN Charter, which states that obligations under the UN Charter prevail over any other international obligation, and in particular states make sometimes, in case of uh, armed operations authorized by the Security Council, the argument that the Security Council resolution prevails over the Geneva Conventions or over human rights treaties. We shall also come back to that. But let's first have a look at the traditional differences between the two branches. And here obviously I have to compare international humanitarian law of international armed conflicts because humanitarian law was made originally for international armed conflict, at least modern humanitarian law, with human rights law. So I compare the traditional humanitarian law of international armed conflicts with human rights law. Now, the history is humanitarian law is much older than human rights law, or at least international human rights law, and I speak in this lecture only about international human rights law. Uh, humanitarian law is probably one of the oldest branches of international law because uh, two of the oldest forms in which organized societies interacted were trade and armed conflict, unfortunately. Uh, and even the codified form in the Geneva Conventions, the Hague Conventions, uh, uh, is now at least 150 years old, while, as you know, international human rights law 
developed only after the Second World War. The nature of the rules is also different. International human rights law um, is mainly, human rights are mainly protected by domestic law. And there are regional and universal rules in international law. And you know that a lot of regional regimes like the European, the American and the African regime can go much further, in particular in its, their implementation mechanisms than the universal regime. While international humanitarian law is, consists necessarily of international law, you cannot protect war victims of international armed conflict by domestic law. This is clearly an issue of international law. And international humanitarian law consists only of universal rules. There are no regional regimes in international humanitarian law. Some people would think perhaps uh, we should try to develop them, but obviously this would raise quite difficulties about, say, European states fighting in Afghanistan. Is there the European regime or an Asian regime applicable? I think it's right that humanitarian law continues to consist only of universal rules. Um, also, the universality is slightly different, uh, I think, but this can be uh, denied, uh, that humanitarian law lays down or is based on common values present in all cultures, while on international human rights law there are simply more debates about universality. Also, uh, most of us believe that human rights are universal uh, and indeed in all cultures uh, individuals have rights. But there, as soon as you go into details, we must admit that there are controversies, and uh, in particular when it comes to individual rights, including uh, of those who willingly put themselves outside the society, there are different cultural traditions in the world, which doesn't mean that this argument, in my view, allows states not to comply with their international obligations, which they have accepted. Nevertheless, I think also because uh, humanitarian law is, the aim of humanitarian law is not to defy the sovereign, but somehow to guarantee a minimum of humanity in a very inhumane situation, which is armed conflict. This is more easily accepted in all cultures. There's also a structural difference traditionally, and I think that's quite an important one. International humanitarian law consists of objective rules of behavior, law, while human rights law consists of rights, subjective rights. And so, of 
even in the many cases in which both branches lead to the same result, the formulation is different. Let me give an example. One of the perhaps not, certainly not the most important issue which arises in armed conflict, uh, there's a question. May you shoot on a soldier who parachutes down from an aircraft? In humanitarian law, you have a rule which says that it depends whether this is an aircraft in distress, then you may not shoot on such a soldier, but you have to allow the soldier to land and then the soldier must have the opportunity to surrender, otherwise you may shoot on him uh, in an armed conflict. Uh, while if it is a parachuter, you may shoot even while uh, the soldier parachutes down. Now, the same problem could be solved by human rights law, the right to life. But there, one would have to determine whether it's absolutely necessary to preserve the security of the state to shoot on the soldier while he's still uh, parachuting down. This would be developed by hypothesis by international courts and so five years after the soldier has been shot, uh, a human rights court would decide that uh, this is not justified if um, the uh, soldier is parachuting from an aircraft in distress. But you see that for humanitarian law we often we always need more operational, precise rules of behavior. So the same right formulated in human rights term is translated in humanitarian law into rules of behavior for the guard. For instance, uh, what in human rights law would, me, would be formulated as the right of a prisoner of war to uh, family life to communication with his or her family, in humanitarian law, it's simply formulated in how many letters per month a prisoner of war may receive and send. Then the role of domestic law is also different. Uh, humanitarian law may largely be respected uh, independently of the applicable territorial domestic law. If you are a soldier and you have to go to fight on the other side of the planet and you are well trained in humanitarian law, you can respect humanitarian law without knowing the domestic legislation of the country where you are fighting. While international human rights law is only a framework for applicable uh, domestic law and therefore human rights law may to a large extent only be respected through appropriate domestic legislation. Therefore, if you are a policeman and are supposed to police a community on the other side of the globe, you first have to know the domestic law of that country somehow. The international rules are only a framework, while in humanitarian law, the international rules regulate 
all the specific issues which arise in armed conflict. Another important difference is obviously the situations to which both branches apply. Um, international humanitarian law only applies to armed conflicts and it makes a distinction between international and non-international armed conflicts. Uh, this is the subject of another lecture. But I have to stress, before you can apply international humanitarian law, you have to classify the situation and this is often not so easy. While human rights law applies to all situations, so you don't have to classify a situation. Oh, human rights law applies. But it's true that derogations are possible in situations of emergency. It's however clear that human rights law also applies in armed conflict. Uh, so you don't need to classify the situation to know whether human rights law applies. While for humanitarian law, you need that. Where does it apply? Well, uh, for humanitarian law, extraterritorial applicability of humanitarian law is uncontroversial. So if a state chooses to attack with a missile people on the other side of the globe, this attack is clearly governed by international humanitarian law. While on international human rights law, there are controversies about the extraterritorial applicability. Most states and most experts consider that it applies extraterritorially. However, not astonishingly, precisely states which either occupy or have occupied uh, foreign territories uh, have another opinion on that. But let us assume that human rights law applies extraterritorially, then even then the second controversy arises. Uh, how much control do you need over a person or a territory to be bound by human rights uh, obligations? Today, except if you deny the applicability totally, it's uncontroversial that, for instance, if you have territorial control over an occupied territory, then you have also to respect human rights law on that territory. Uh, while it would be astonishing if a state had to respect the human rights of people who have no relationship whatsoever with that state, and you understand that this is a critical issue in the current discussion about drone attacks. If these attacks are uh, conducted in the framework of an armed conflict, then humanitarian law certainly applies. If it's not an armed conflict, the question arises, uh, does human rights law protect people who have no relationship with the state conducting these drone attacks? Can those people on the ground somewhere in the world uh, be considered to be under the jurisdiction of the state who conducts the drone attacks because at least the human rights treaties 
say that they apply to persons who find themselves under the jurisdiction of a state party and the implementing mechanisms have only jurisdiction if a violation has been committed against a person uh, found under the jurisdiction of a state party. Let's now speak about who is protected by both branches. There, in international humanitarian law, there's an old-fashioned concept of protected persons. At least in international armed conflict, each Geneva Convention foresees a category of persons it defines who are protected persons and who benefit from the entire protection of that convention. So, first Geneva Convention, the uh, wounded and sick, the second, the wounded, sick and shipwrecked at sea, the third Geneva Convention protects prisoners of war and in its Article 4 there is a precise definition of who is a prisoner of war and not everyone who fights in an armed conflict is a prisoner of war. Uh, but only prisoners of war benefit from the entire protection of the Third Geneva Convention. And finally, in the Fourth Geneva Convention, uh, there is uh, the concept of protected civilians, and not all civilians are protected civilians. Basically, only enemy civilians, civilians in the power of the adverse party, and some neutral nationals are protected civilians. But we shouldn't misunderstand this concept of protected person, which is a technical term in humanitarian law. It sounds strange, but even persons who are not protected persons are protected by some rules of humanitarian law, simply not by the entire regime of a certain convention. So, this concept of protected person makes it more complicated to apply humanitarian law, because before you can apply a certain convention, you have to determine whether the individual concerned is a protected person under that convention. In human rights law, it's much easier. Everyone is protected by human rights law. So you don't have to do all this. Then who is bound by these rules? There too, there is a difference. Humanitarian law applies to states, to armed opposition groups, and at least for the criminalized rules, directly to individuals. So an individual who, in an armed conflict, linked to the armed conflict, kills a civilian, even if that individual is not a soldier, the killer, commits a war crime and may be and must be punished based on international law. While human rights bind basically the state. And therefore, the policeman who would torture me does not really technically violate international human rights law. He violates the legislation of his state, while it's the state who violates the international human rights guarantees. If we now look at the protected rights, I would say humanitarian law obviously only protects those which are 
specifically threatened by an armed conflict and are not incompatible with the very nature uh, of an armed conflict. So, for instance, unfortunately, international humanitarian law cannot protect the right to life of a combatant while the combatant is fighting and before such a combatant is either surrendering or wounded or sick. And uh, international humanitarian law cannot protect the right to peace because it has already been violated when there is an armed conflict. And it cannot protect the right to self-determination of peoples because a lot of armed conflicts are precisely conducted to exercise this right to self-determination and in such a conflict both sides have to comply with the rules of international humanitarian law. So, humanitarian law only uh, deals with some specific rights specifically threatened by armed conflict. So, for instance, in the Geneva Conventions you will not find anything about the freedom of press. Also, the freedom of press or the freedom of opinion is very important. But states who drafted these treaties considered that these are not specifically threatened by armed conflict, while the right to life of civilians, personal freedom, the right to food, the right to health are regulated in a much more detailed way and as I said, not by stating a right but by laying down objective rules of behavior for belligerents in armed conflicts by international humanitarian law, while if you would translate them into human rights, say the Geneva Conventions with more, some 500 articles, if we wanted to translate them into human rights law, we would probably have 10 pages, something like that. Because human rights are much more abstract and simply foresee a subjective right. And it's then the practice of the implementing bodies which clarifies what this means in detail. And obviously human rights law cover a much greater variety, as you know, of civil and political, economic, social and cultural, as well as collective rights, while again humanitarian law deals only with some rights, but much more in detail. Derogations, I already mentioned, in international human rights law, it's possible in a situation of emergency, and an armed conflict is a situation of emergency, to derogate from some human rights if this is necessary and proportional, but not from the hard core. While obviously humanitarian law has been made for armed conflict and therefore you cannot derogate from humanitarian law invoking that there is an armed conflict. It has precisely been made for armed conflict. And now to come down to some practical issues, um, let's compare the regulations uh, of the two branches onto crucial issues, the use of deadly force and the detention of enemies. 
in international humanitarian law, the use of deadly force, and that's shocking, but this is the rule, is normal against combatants and against civilians directly participating in hostilities. While in human rights law, the use of deadly force by the police, for instance, is very exceptional, is lawful only in extreme situations, and it is subsidiary to the obligation to arrest, and there must be a prior warning. While in an international armed conflict, when you shoot on an enemy soldier, you don't have to warn that soldier first and saying, give up, otherwise I will use force. While this is precisely what you have to do under human rights law, and we will see that this is one of the issues where the two branches foresee different rules, and therefore we have to determine, well, which one do we apply if both uh, apply. Um, I should also clarify in this context that the use of force, uh, it's not that the use of force in armed conflict is uh, governed by humanitarian law and in uh, peacetime by human rights law. Uh, it depends in armed conflicts of the kind of operations. Military operations are governed by humanitarian law, while even in armed conflict there are plenty of police operations and they remain governed by uh, international human rights law. So for instance, when the armed forces of an occupying power in an occupied territory repress a violent demonstration, they cannot treat the demonstrators as combatants or civilians directly participating in hostilities, but they have to apply the same rules of human rights law which apply in peacetime to the repression of violent demonstrations. The second big issue is the, the issue of the detention of enemies, where the two branches traditionally have a very different approach. In international humanitarian law, Combatants may be detained as prisoners of war until the end of active hostilities without any judicial control. You will be shocked that I say this, but this is the essence of prisoner of war status. When you are in an international armed conflict, say Second World War, when you were a German soldier and you fell into the power of US forces, you were detained somewhere in the US without any judicial control and for an indefinite period because no one knew when the conflict will end. This idea of indefinite detention without control is totally shocking for human rights law. And as far as civilians are concerned, they may not be detained. Uh, automatically, but they may detain, be detained in humanitarian law for international armed conflicts for imperative security reasons after an individual determination, but which must not be necessarily a judicial determination, or in view of a trial, but this is like in human rights law, while in human rights law everyone arrested and detained has a right to judicial control to habeas corpus. 
And finally, I would mention a traditional differences in implementation. You know, the traditional implementation body for international humanitarian law is the International Committee of the Red Cross, which has, as you know, a very particular approach. It is, if I may call this that way, access-oriented. Its priority is to have access to war victims, to visit them, to assist them. It tries to uh, monitor the respect of humanitarian law permanently, preventively. It has a preventive, corrective action. It tries to cooperate with belligerents. Uh, and therefore, its approach is confidential and bilateral. While violations of international human rights law were traditionally dealt with uh, in a, what I call, violation-oriented way. A posteriori, so there is a monitoring body which waits until someone complains, and then there will be a procedure. And some years later, there will be a finding whether uh, international human rights law has been violated or not. Now, from this description, you see that I describe the traditional way how things worked. Today, there's a great convergence that on the one hand, there's more and more judicial implementation by tribunals of humanitarian law, in particular in the field of international criminal law. And on the other hand, as all of you know, uh, there are more and more human rights mechanisms which do not wait until someone complains, but have a monitoring, a permanent monitoring, uh, monitoring function in the field, and states report about their respect, not after a complaint, but generally, for instance, the Human Rights Council in the Universal Periodic Review debates the respect of human rights. Now, let's speak about the convergence. There is an increasing convergence of the substantive rules because uh, human rights law is a much more important, uh, has a more important driving force. And today, especially in the law of non-international armed conflicts, humanitarian law takes over a lot of rules of uh, human rights law. What happens if both branches apply. And there are still differences, in particular in the two fields I mentioned, use of deadly force and uh, detention. There, according to the International Court of Justice, uh, in the advisory opinion on the legality of the threat or use of nuclear weapons, and again, in the advisory opinion on the legality of the uh, wall in the Palestinian occupied territories has stated that uh, international humanitarian law constitutes the lex specialis. And indeed, if both branches apply, the majority opinion is that any contradiction has, been, has to be solved by the uh, lex specialis principle, but what is controversial 
is what does it mean to apply the Lex Specialis principle. Some people, and very few states, say the Lex Specialis principle means humanitarian law is always the Lex Specialis and therefore in armed conflicts we always apply humanitarian law. But this would mean that you deny, in effect, the applicability of human rights law. While under the human rights law treaties it is clear that they also apply in uh, armed conflict. The second approach is to say uh, Lex Specialis means where there is a rule of humanitarian law, which is not the case on all issues, I mentioned freedom of press and so on, then we apply the more detailed rule of humanitarian law. A third, a third approach is to say, this is what some humanitarians wish, we apply the more protective rule. Uh, because in human rights law we have such a principle of interpretation that it's the more protective rule which prevails. But I think you cannot apply this to the relationship between humanitarian law and human rights law because humanitarian law is simply a compromise between humanity and military necessity. And I mean in practice to apply the most protective rule would mean that you would nearly always apply the rule of international human rights law. And that would mean that, for instance, in an international armed conflict on the battlefield, you would have to try to arrest enemy soldiers and you would have to warn them before you shoot on them. Now, from a humanitarian point of view, I could wish this, but this is unrealistic in an international armed conflict and unrealistic rules don't protect anyone but undermine the credibility of these rules which have to be respected by those who make war. And therefore we have to convince them that these rules are realistic. And therefore the fourth possibility what Lex Specialis means is it depends uh, which of two rules covers more specifically, precisely and more in detail the given situation. So in my view, Lex Specialis is not a quality of a branch, but it's about the relation between two rules in respect of a given situation. One of my students has defined this once as the need to determine which rule has a greater common contact surface area between the rule and the facts, whether it's the humanitarian law rule or the human rights law rule. And it's the one which has the greater common contact surface area between the rule and the fact, which prevails under the Lex Specialis principle. Now, there I should uh, clarify, and uh, this may be strange for some, that I use the term Lex Specialis as going in both directions. So, uh, Lex Specialis is simply the rule which prevails. Uh, therefore, sometimes it's humanitarian law which prevails and sometimes it's human rights law which prevails. While some people consider, no, Lex Specialis means 
humanitarian law is the lex specialis, but sometimes the lex generalis, human rights law, prevails. I think the results of the two terminologies are the same, but I think it's preferable to clarify that uh, one or the other branch may constitute the lex specialis and we always apply the lex specialis and never the lex generalis. But you see, in my view, this is a pure question of terminology. And when we determine the lex specialis, unfortunately, we cannot do this only in a logical process with the famous common contact surface area, but we have to take into account the overall normative purpose of international law. May I give you an example? Uh, if you were simply looking at the rules, which rules are more precise, Article 21 of the Third Geneva Convention says prisoners of war may be interned. It doesn't say they must be interned, and it doesn't say what's the procedure to intern them. So, if you simply look at the rules, you would think that the very detailed procedural rules in human rights law, under what conditions and according to what procedure a person may be deprived of his or her liberty, prevail because they are more precise on this issue. But if you take into account the overall normative purpose of the two branches, you have to admit what would a judge determine when a prisoner of war appears before a judge for an individual determination. It has the detention of a prisoner of war has nothing to do with what the prisoner of war himself did or did not or what threat he represents. No, it's because he belongs to the armed forces of the enemy that he or she may be detained. So I think uh, the, that on this specific issue, for instance, international humanitarian law prevails. Now, let us apply the Lex Specialis principle. I think in international armed conflicts, this is not so difficult because uh, international humanitarian law is generally more specific on the problems it deals with. The trickiest problem is in the greatest number of conflicts, which are non-international armed conflicts. And there too, although as a professor I'm fascinated by the Lex Specialis problems, I have to admit that on most issues, both branches, international humanitarian law and international human, uh, human rights law, lead to exactly the same results. For instance, on humane treatment, including of persons detained, the prohibition of torture, the prohibition of rape, the prohibition of summary executions, judicial guarantees in case of prosecution, the prohibition to attack civilians. Both branches lead exactly to the same result, one or the other simply providing a little more details. But there are mainly two issues, mainly in non-international armed conflict, where the Lex Specialis principle uh, leads 
to a result that one uh, branch prevails over the different rules of another branch. And these two issues are, as I already mentioned, the issue of when may an enemy fighter in a non-international armed conflict, we don't have combatants, but I call them fighters, members of an armed group, party to an armed conflict. When may such an enemy fighter be killed? And when and according to what procedure may such a person be detained? And here there is controversy. And I cannot tell you what is right. I simply can you, uh, tell you what are the different positions and which position I would uh, favor. So, let's first speak about attacks. The question is, when may an enemy fighter, a member of an armed group with a continuous fighting function, in a non-international armed conflict be attacked? And here we have three approaches. One says, humanitarian law is the lex specialis and in addition we make an analogy with the law of international armed conflict. This would mean that if you are a member of an armed group, you may be attacked at any time, like a combatant in an international armed conflict, until you either surrender or are wounded, sick or the combat. That's what I call the IHL is Lex Specialis plus IHL of international armed conflict is applied by analogy to non-international armed conflict. The problem is obviously that it is much more difficult in a non-international armed conflict to determine who is uh, an enemy fighter. This, especially if that enemy fighter is in the moment where you attack the fighter, not directly participating in hostilities, because obviously if someone commits an act of hostility, it's easier to determine that that's apparently a fighter because he uh, sends rockets. While if he makes a break, sleeps, uh, is with his family at home, it's much more difficult to know, is this a fighter or is this a civilian? Therefore, the second approach, which still would say international humanitarian law is the lex specialis, uh, would simply say no, a fighter is not a combatant and therefore necessarily a civilian. And civilians may only be attacked if and for such time as they directly participate in hostilities. And the third approach is the human rights law is the lex specialis approach, which would say that unlike for international armed conflicts, for non-international armed conflicts, in the humanitarian law treaties, we don't have a rule on when and for what reasons someone may be killed. It simply says civilians are protected uh, except if and for such time as they directly participate in hostilities. There's nothing about fighters. Therefore, if we have to apply the Lex Specialis principle and in one branch 
there's nothing. And the other branch has detailed rules. We apply the, rule, the detailed rules of the other branch. And therefore, this would mean, under human rights law, that a fighter may only be killed if the fighter cannot be arrested. So there would be, as for a police operation in a non-international armed conflict, a priority for arrest. But obviously the situation of an armed conflict, because let us not forget that human rights law is flexible, would be taken into account. And if there is an armed conflict, it's often not possible to arrest a person. But the rule would nevertheless be that whenever possible you have to arrest an enemy fighter. And the second issue, as I mentioned, is the issue of detention. And I think it's important not to treat it necessarily in the same way than the issue of killing. The question is, may members of armed groups in non-international armed conflicts who have fallen into hand of the government be detained either, that's the analogy with the international armed conflict uh, approach, like in international armed conflicts, for the mere fact that they are enemy fighters without any judicial control until the end of the conflict. This is the so-called unlawful combatant theory. And it means that the enemy fighter has never a chance to make an argument that he or she is not a fighter. And therefore I think this approach is wrong because simply the facts are different in a non-international armed conflict. It's not clear who is an enemy soldier, unlike in an international armed conflict. And therefore, there must be an opportunity where you determine whether this person is actually a, a, an enemy fighter. And expressed in legal terms, I would simply say, human rights law constitutes the lex specialis in this situation, because if you look into Article 3 Common and into Protocol 2, there are guarantees of humane treatment and those who are prosecuted benefit from judicial guarantees. But there is nothing on the question for what reasons and in what procedure may someone be detained who is not prosecuted. So again, it sounds naive, but my approach would be if one branch contains details on a, an issue and the other branch nothing, the Lex Specialis is the branch which contains details of, on the issue and this is human rights law. And this would be mean that an enemy fighter may only be detained in view of a trial or in case of derogation for uh, security reasons, but there must be a judicial control over that. Obviously, there, to keep it realistic, the procedure of habeas corpus must be adapted to the realities of an armed conflict, because often you will not have the possibility to call witnesses and to have a complete file and so on if someone is arrested on the battlefield. The next point is the 
the, for the relationship between the two branches, the reference to international humanitarian law by human rights mechanisms. Somehow today, human rights mechanisms have become an enforcement mechanism for international humanitarian law. Why this? First of all, because we have many human rights mechanisms and they function. They don't function fully satisfactorily. The, a lot of uh, improvement is still necessary, but it works. And on the regional level, be it in Europe, in the Americas and in Africa, individuals can bring a case before an international body. And therefore it's understandable that victims of violations of humanitarian law who have no access to a humanitarian law court, they try to bring their case before a human rights court or a human rights body or on the universal level before the UN Human Rights Committee. And that states try to discuss, for instance, in the Universal Periodic Review, the respect of humanitarian law in the Human Rights Council. Simply because, apart from the International Committee of the Red Cross, which has a quite different uh, way of working and mandate, we don't have a specific humanitarian law mechanism. And this can be based easily on the existing uh, treaties for the UN Charter mechanisms, obviously, but also for the regional and universal treaty bodies precisely on the Lex Specialis principle, as in particular the inter-American system has clarified, we have to understand human rights in an armed conflict in light of the Lex Specialis, which is humanitarian law. And therefore, even if, for instance, the Inter-American Commission and the Inter-American Inter Court on Human Rights cannot find a violation of humanitarian law, it has to determine whether human rights law, for instance, the right to life or the right to personal freedom in an armed conflict was violated or not, taking into account the Lex Specialis, which is uh, humanitarian uh, law. And it is interesting how many human rights NGOs today apply international humanitarian law and make, in my view, excellent reports on the respect of international humanitarian law. So, on the level of implementation, I would say, for the time being, human rights mechanisms also take largely care of uh, humanitarian law issues, but obviously they are not specialized in humanitarian law and they have a rather human rights approach and therefore sometimes, according to some, their findings are unrealistic and again, unrealistic rules don't protect anyone. So, there is a certain uh, 
the idea now there is an initiative of the International Committee of the Red Cross and of Switzerland as a depository of the Geneva Conventions and Additional Protocols to develop a specific humanitarian law implementing mechanism, first uh, state dialogue, something like the Human Rights Council deals with human rights and there would be a dialogue between states on the respect of humanitarian law and ideally also a treaty body. We will see whether states accept that. For the time being, I think it's very important that human rights mechanisms deal also with situations which are equally covered by international humanitarian law. To conclude, some people say the two branches should, could, should converge even further. Do we need further convergence between the two branches? I must say I'm not sure. First, the practical results of the application of both branches, and I should stress this again, in most, on most issues are exactly the same, simply in this lecture on the killing and detention of enemy fighters, I put the emphasis on the issues where there's a problem, where there's a controversy. I didn't speak about rape. Also, this is a horrible violation of both humanitarian law and human rights law. But there is no uh, question of lex specialis or which prevails and so on. Uh, so the practical results are most of the time the same. Where the results are different, there, in my view, this is due to the difference in the situation. To arrest a criminal in a peaceful town and to arrest a fighter or a combatant on the battlefield is simply not the same situation. And therefore, I think, it is justified and necessary that uh, these two situations remain governed by different rules. However, I think it is necessary that practitioners get guidelines how to reconcile the different answers of the two branches. You remember the controversies I was speaking about. I don't think you can tell a soldier well, you have to apply the Lex Specialis and to, to, uh, determine which is the greater common uh, contact surface area between the rule and the situation you are confronted with. No. While I think this is the correct theory, this has to be translated by states into precise instructions for armed forces, for police, and so on. And I think it is also important that all those who are involved in the implementation of the two branches are fully familiar with the other branch. I think there is now progress. More and more people working in human rights NGOs have also a good knowledge of international humanitarian law. Perhaps in some of the regional systems it would still be necessary that the judges uh, are more familiar with humanitarian law, otherwise they may take decisions which are not 
fully realistic and again unrealistic rules don't protect anyone. Thank you very much.